Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Ewan Graham. I'm the executive director of uh, La Trobe Asia. And um, thank you for all coming here tonight. We're, um, we're very privileged to have uh, an all Melbourne multi-university lineup here to discuss the uh, Indonesian elections. When I say elections, the stress is very much on plural because this was a, an unprecedented combination of, of elections, not just the presidential election um, on April 17th, but also combining several layers of, of legislative ele election, uh, as well as um, settling the issue of the, uh, of the vice presidency. Joining me here to, to my uh, immediate left is Professor Vedi Hadiz, the Director and Professor of Asian Studies at the Asia Institute uh, at the uh, University of Melbourne. Um, Vedi's research uh, interests revolve around political sociology and political economy issues, uh, especially those related to the contradictions of development uh, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia uh, more broadly, and um, for that matter, more recently, the Middle East. And his latest book uh, is titled Islamic Populism in Indonesia and the Middle East, published by, by Cambridge in 2016. To Vedi's left, Dr. Gemma Purdy uh, is a research fellow from Monash, based at their Australia-Indonesia centre there. Uh, Gemma's research interests include Indonesian politics and contemporary history and Australia-Indonesia uh, relations. And she's an editor uh, of the online magazine Inside Indonesia. At the end, my colleague Dirk Thompson is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. And Dirk's mo uh, main research interests include Indonesian politics and society, democratization studies, political Islam in Asia, as well as comparative Southeast Asian politics, especially elections, so topical to say uh, the least, and party politics. Uh, and um, uh, both Dirk and Vedi were there um, in Indonesia recently. Gemma, I'm not sure if you were up there as well, but we have um, a good, uh, I think, uh, sense of ground truth from those who are um, there in Jakarta to observe uh, events on the ground uh, recently. Um, there is, in fact, a, an event taking place in parallel tonight at the University of Melbourne to also discuss the uh, Indonesia elections. Uh, I'm not too w worried about that. I'll take that as a, an injunction to keep the trobe on its toes. Uh, but we have a foot in both camps. Uh, on the one hand, I have Professor uh, Vedi Hadiz here, uh, but we also have a Latrobe representative at the other event. So um, we're, we're well and truly covered. I think it says a lot for Melbourne's depth of, uh, of interest that we can actually have two uh, uh, events on the Indonesia elections held in, in parallel. Let's get straight um, to it. And I'd also like to welcome uh, on our, our online participants, um, in, including from our satellite campus uh, at Bendigo. So Gemma, I might start with you, if I may. Social media has emerged as a key battleground in Indonesian politics of late. What lessons can we draw from Indonesia's experience of that? Uh, and for example, with the spread of fake news. Well, yeah, thanks for the question. As we're all aware, social media and elections and politics, they all go together. And that's when, you know, we're talking about Indonesia in this context. But, you know, there are many, many parallels with what is happening elsewhere in the world, including what's happening here. Indonesia is no different in that regard. Um, this election, we saw a bit of a change, and I think that what had happened was Indonesian um, online 
um, social media responses to politics and elections had kind of reached a little bit of a point of hysteria, probably around early two, 2017 with the, governor, um, the elections for Jakarta's governor at that time. And as many of you will know, uh, this was a particularly heated election involving um, Ahok, formerly known as Ahok, the then um, sitting governor, who was um, trying to be elected uh, for, for a second term. And there's a lot of uh, issues around that regarding uh, his, um, well, he was currently, he was at that time um, on trial uh, for blasphemy and subsequently was uh, found guilty, etc. So this was a moment in Indonesia's history where you had this uh, hysterical kind of outpouring of um, maybe Islamic kind of sentiment. And I think that he's going to talk about that a little bit more, but also it was a very um, heightened time on social media where minorities were feeling really... Um, uh, victimised at that point, and they were. And there's an academic in Canada, her name's Merlina Lim, and she's really looked into units that are set up to, you know, deliberately create um, social media content, whether it be hoaxes or whatever it is, and this was reaching its pinnacle at that time in early 2017. And she called it a freedom to hate. There was just a lot of hate, hateful rhetoric on social media around that election. I think with this current election, the one that we've just had, um, I think you could probably argue that even though all of that stuff was, was still there, it was less pronounced. And the thing is that the main candidates... Um, were, well, I think that actually the Indonesian public are a little bit more uh, savvy about how they were responding to social media and, and kind of able to separate a little bit more clearly what was true and what was not true. So some of the lessons were learned of that. Of I the think, Ahok yeah, period. definitely. And look, Indonesians are early adopters of technologies and social media, including. So uh, I see, I saw like a maturing of, of, you know, the use of social media. You have kind of these two things going on where you have the official campaign, which is running a very slick, um, on both sides, very slick, you know, incredible video, incredible content, daily um, reaching voters. But on the other hand, you have what you could call like an informal campaign on social media, yeah. both backing, you know, the different sides. And that's where you get the kind of more crazy stuff going on. But at the same time, yeah, Indonesians, many of you will know, have great sense of humour and ability to kind of riff off stuff and so uh, lots and lots of content that was, you know, memes was taking fun, making fun of, of this content as well and that was particularly so I think among younger uh, voters who were really seeing through some of that. Well I want to come back to you on that question of young voters but first of all I'll go to you Vedi uh, and Jim has already foreshadowed my question because it's to do with the role of religion and Islam in particular in the 2019 elections. Uh, were the results more of a victory for pluralism, in your view, or for political Islam overall? Uh, and as a, a rider to that, does the result leave Indonesia more divided or less divided than before the election? Well, first of all, uh, I think uh, it would be a mischaracterization to say that the elections were, were uh, pitting Islam versus you know, non-Islamic forces. Uh, in reality, both uh, presidential candidates in their own ways did try to mobilize Islamic sentiment. Okay, so 
we can't say it was Islam versus non-Islam. Um, secondly, uh, I, it, it does, though, bring up the question as to why would uh, both candidates uh, try to incorporate Islamic uh, symbolism, imagery, or you know, the political vocabulary of Islam into their uh, electoral campaigns? Well, there are several reasons for that, uh, and I won't go into them uh, too deeply unless you want me to. But clearly, there has been a, a, a development in Indonesia, and some people say it started uh, after the fall of Suharto. I disagree. I think it goes all the way back to the 1970s and just sort of gradually developed, and that is of of you know gradual you know cultural islamization of 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 society at large uh, and it happened at about the same time that a similar phenomenon was taking place in many muslim majority societies in the world in the middle east uh, malaysia south asia etc so from that point of view Indonesia was no exception. Why it happened at that time, I have an answer for. We can talk about that later. Uh, so, so there is that general uh, greater, I think, you know, social conservatism in Indonesia than there was 30 years ago. So obviously, you know, political forces would want to cater to the sensibilities of the electorate, as they do here in Australia, right? So that's logical. But the other thing is this. Um, uh, there are also fringe groups uh, that have made it into the more central arenas of politics. So if 10 years or so ago these groups would have been on the fringe, uh, now uh, they have managed to occupy a more central uh, part on the political stage. And there are several reasons for that. One is that uh, their discourse has been incorporated into that of mainstream political discourse, right? So ideas that seem to be crackpot ideas 10 years ago now suddenly seem to be quite you know, common. But then again, I would say that a similar process has occurred uh, in the West, although not with regards to Islam. So in, in Australia uh, and in Europe and in America, you know, ideas that 10 years ago would have been considered crackpot ideas uh, on the fringe uh, have now been mainstreamed because they've been adopted and finessed and reprojected uh, re by especially centre-right uh, parties. So these crackpot ideas are now part of the common conversation in Western societies as well. So a parallel kind of development has occurred in Indonesia, but rather than you know, what you would identify as far-right ideas, maybe in Western societies, you, know, you could ident identify the, these as sort of orthodox, conservative forms of Islam. Now, the overall effect of that is that... Uh, uh, you know, you have had a, a greater uh, uh, development of conservative kinds of discourse within Indonesian politics in general. 
And uh, that, I think, has implications. And the implication, I think, the great implication is that uh, Indonesian democracy, I think, is being stirred in more socially uh, conservative directions, as politics is, I think, being steered in more conservative directions in a lot of other societies as well. But this is different from saying that, and I'd like to make this clear, uh, from saying that these fringe groups or these radical Islamists or whatever you call them are about to take power. That's patently ridiculous. Uh, it is the case that they've been incorporated, right, into the power structures. They've been co-opted, right, to, 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 to a large extent. But it's very different from saying that they can autonomously direct, you know, the way that Indonesian politics uh, 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 get steered into. Um, there's no way that they are on the verge of taking over state power. There's no way that you know Indonesian democracy is is, is you know is in danger of being uh, a pathway into uh, some sort of uh, caliphate or, or anything like that. So I think we need to make a distinction just, between those two things. Just want to cut in and, yeah. and ask a bit more about um, as you mentioned, both candidates mm. um, were in, playing mm. some sort of mm. uh, Islamic card mm. in a sense, mm. and observers. Um, of Prabowo in particular articulate that his the audiences in the late stage of his campaign demonstrated that more directly. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but uh, Jokowi also selected um, Maro Famine as yeah, his yeah. as his running mate. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that was instrumental in in the um, in the victory? Well, I, I think it was, assuming it is a victory, we don't have a, a well. I think it was a, a highly calculated move. Uh, that did uh, uh, work for Jokowi, uh, you know, on, on the balance of things. Because I think, look, he picks Ma'ruf Amin, who obviously a, a significant portion of the supporters of Jokowi would dislike, right? These are the more secular liberal types of people, especially those who had supported Ahok, right? So picking Ma'ruf Amin, who was so instrumental in the downfall of Ahok, uh, himself uh, would have definitely uh, been calculated to lose him some support. Now, some of these people uh, would have probably gone, uh, as you call it, golput Indonesia, so opted not to vote or to to destroy the uh, ballot paper or whatever. Uh, uh, but they were not likely to go to the Prabowo direction, right? Now, but picking Ma'ruf Amin meant meant to some extent nullifying the power of the, the idea being put forward from the Prabowo camp that they are the sole representatives of Islamic interests and aspirations. And therefore, it nullifies the idea that, well, if you vote for Jokowi, it's a vote against Islam. After all, Ma'ruf Amin has conservative credentials, and moreover, he's the chair of the largest Islamic association in the country. So I think the calculation was that picking Ma'ruf would gain him more votes than he would lose, and I think that's probably correct. Dirk, let's bring you in now at this stage. Um, we've been talking very much about national trends, but of course Indonesia is an extraordinarily diverse country, 17,000 islands, etc., etc. 
Um, you have a lot of um, uh, expertise in, in tracking how uh, elec elections break down at the, at the regional level. To what extent um, were regional factors instrumental in, in shaping the result at the national level in the 2019 elections? And you can come at that from any position you like, whether it's presidential or legis legislative. Hmm. Yeah, I might just pick up uh, where Vedi stopped with that, um, with the appointment of Maruf Amin, for example, as vice presidential candidate. Um, this was, if we speak about religious constituencies, clearly aimed, of course, of getting uh, Muslims on board uh, for Jokowi. But it also had a regional dimension. So Maruf Amin is from Natlatul Ulama, the largest Islamic organization in the country. And the power base of Natlatul Ulama is in eastern central Java. If you add to that West Java, the other big province in Java, you've got already three massive constituencies where um, overwhelming, well, not the majority, but a large part of the overall votes uh, was coming from. And Maruf Amin is from West Java, from Banten, so close, close enough. Um, so appointing him was targeted, basically, at getting votes where a lot of votes were located. Um, Getting someone from the outer islands, as was the calculation with Yusuf Kala five years ago, uh, was not so much on the cards this time because of this Islamic dimension of it. So Jokowi knew that he needed people who were coming from Natatul Lama, for example. And that paid off very handsomely. Uh, in 2014, the vote in Central and East Java was pretty much divided between Jokowi and Prabowo. This time around, Jokowi won very big in those two provinces. So that's one part of the regional sort of dimension. Another interesting one is that there seems to be now a bit of an east-west divide in the support. Um, if you look at which candidate won in which province, Prabowo did very well in most provinces in Sumatra. Um, up in Aceh, in the far northwestern tip of Sumatra, he won, I think, more than 80% of the vote which is remarkable given the history of conflict in Aceh and mm. Prabowo's um, pa past <laughs> as a... And how, um, how short political memory can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also further down, uh, further south, across Sumatra, basically, mm. Prabowo won many, many provinces. I think there was only one that Jokowi won. Um, so that's had many reasons. One is Sumatra is a more modernist um, Islamic base. So these people were perhaps out of religious um, considerations, already more sympathetic to Prabowo. There was also an economic dimension. Um, much of Sumatra um, is in the oil palm industry and um, prices for this commodity have been plummeting, so the economy wasn't doing so well in Sumatra. So a lot of people blamed Jokowi for that and therefore also supported Prabowo. Um, if you travel east, so you cross Java, where, as I just said, um, Jokowi did quite well. Um, so the further east you got, Jokowi became stronger and stronger. Not wholesale, there were exceptions, but um, out in the east, Bali, in Bali we got more than 90%. Um, then Sulawesi, some provinces he did well, um, Nusa Tenggara Timur, Maluku, Papua. The further east you got, um, Prabowo um, had no chance of winning and Jokowi was winning really big. Um, so an interesting sub-dimension of that is in the east we have several provinces where religious minorities as a whole in the country are actually majorities. Um, so in Papua, very few Muslims. Uh, in North Sulawesi, very few Muslims. Bali, Hindu domain. Um, so given that the overall result in the end is probably something like 55 to 45, 
Um, Jokowi's wins in Central and East Java were very handy to get him over the line, but also the support he got from religious minorities. Um, so that also, because they overwhelmingly voted for him, um, so that helped him as well. Okay, Gemma, back to you. I just want to, um, we, we, you mentioned yes. youth as a factor. Both presidential candidates sought to woo so-called millennials who account for 40% of uh, registered voters in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Is it meaningful to talk about capturing the youth vote across such a large and diverse group? Um, how did that dynamic, um, was it, did it play out as, as expected? Well, we don't know yet exactly what percentage of that 40, I think it's 2% of millennials actually voted. We don't know that yet. Um, but in the 2014 election, it was disappointing. So they were aiming to get that number up. And the campaigns were specifically targeting, you know, the youth vote and millennials. So, you know, that was on their minds. They were very aware of, of the value of it. And so you have to, given that it was 42% of the eligible voters and that 80 one percent or something of, of voters turned out, then you know you'd have to imagine quite a lot of them did that. So this time round, um, you know, I'll pick up something that um, from Dirk and actually Vetti as well in terms of the um, the success of the Jokowi team by taking on Maruf Amin, which on the on the face of it, for many, as Vetti was saying, appeared to be a strange and kind of shocking move for many of those who, you know, uh, you know take a more liberal um, uh, view of politics and that you know we might expect that is a view among uh, you know held by millennials as well there's a particular uh, party that was launched this year that that was um, running in the elections um, called the uh, Indonesian um, Socialist Party. Solidarity, Solidarity Party. Party. Sorry, not the Socialists. Are you kidding me? Um, the Indonesian Solidarity Party. And they were specifically talking to millennials, that, that, that age group. And it was interesting because they were in coalition, in the, in the Jokowi coalition. And this was a question that um, was asked of them directly. You know, how can you support this when, you know, this vice presidential candidate, Maruf Amin, has done all these things and is so conservative, etc. And as Vedi was outlining... They took a very pragmatic and strategic view of things and just said, well, that's politics. It's actually very smart of the campaign and outlined all those things that Betty's just discussed here in terms of, well, we'll be picking up votes where we might lose them somewhere else. But at the end of the day, they also saw the value in it because it, it in the end, it neutralised this, the, you know, the potential for attacks on Jokowi himself and attacks on his credibility as, as a Muslim, which was a very big thing during the 2014 campaign. You're kind of like, is he really Muslim? Is he Muslim enough? Maybe he's a little bit Chinese. All those kinds of things that came out, including, you know, accusations that he's communist. And so they were very, you know, that, that was the line that was, that was being held. And so I think that perhaps that's something that, again, I'm back to my point that I think that the young millennial voter, whatever we call them, is actually pretty savvy, pretty, pretty, you know, streetwise and um, uh, well versed in how Indonesian politics runs. And, you know, maybe they saw through some of that, um, you know, that kind of move. So, yeah, the short answer is that, um, uh, yeah, I think that the youth vote was something that the campaigns definitely, you know, deliberately targeted this time around. Thanks. And I appreciate we are still looking at a moving target here. Yeah. We, we don't have a, a formal result and won't have for, for some time. Betty, um, mm -hmm. can I just ask you a bit more about the actual, the, the, the packing of, of um, these legislative elections at several levels 
uh, as well as the presidential uh, election. That was unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent does that vary from the dynamic of, of previous elections? Um, many had in anticipated in advance that uh, Jokowi and Prabowo's parties, the, the PDIP and, and Garindra, would ride on the, ride on the coattails of the presidential ticket mm -hmm. and bag extra legislative seats. Mm -hmm. um, are the indications that, um, that it played out that way yet? Is it, is it, do we, can we tell? Yeah, well, uh, I think a lot of contradictory developments occurred, especially at the local level. Uh, in some uh, localities, yes, you had that coattail effect, but uh, it is well known that if you were a a candidate uh, that was, you know, in the Prabowo camp and you were Gurindra in some locality somewhere and your, you know, sort of uh, uh, nom nominal ally in, in Pan was running as well for the same seat, I mean, they ain't going to give you no, <laughs> no slack. Uh, so I think a development was that uh, uh, I in many localities, uh, political parties actually looked out for their own interests, uh, sometimes at the expense of the interests of the coalition. So, so that was one dynamic uh, that you could see. Uh, uh, but of course, it, it differed in, in different localities. If you were a, a small party anyway, you'd want to link yourself up. Yeah, with with the broader national, you know, uh, 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 sort of uh, beam off. Okay, but but the other thing that that that, that I think I just uh, uh, wanted to point out is, you know, this coattail uh, effect thing. Look, if you look at the the, the quick counts, uh, uh, at least on the basis of the quick counts, you see that uh, the PDIP has actually remained constant. Okay, uh, uh, so it has not increased. Uh, they thought that they'd get 25%. I think they're stuck at just under 20%, right? Gurindra has increased by like half a percentage point or one, one percentage, yeah, yeah. Right? depending on which quick plant you're looking at, right? But the party that proportionately has increased their share of uh, the vote the most is the PKS. It's the PKS. I mean, uh, so last election, what was there, 6.9%? And now they're, what is it, just below 9, I think, right? Just below 9, mm. right? So proportionately, that's a huge increase, right? So is it? did they uh, benefit from, from the Prabowo effect? Uh, could be, but why was it them and not Gurindra? Well, the answer is this. I think that... Uh, all of this, you know, sort of uh, anti-Ahok stuff, which, you know, the legacy of, you know, which li of which lingered on, really was capitalized on most by the PKS. So the, the, the 212, you know, uh, rallies and whatever you call the other one for, whatever it was, you know, uh, uh, it was the PKS and the FPI, you know, which isn't the party, which were considered to be, you know, at the forefront of these things. The Hatei, of course, is banned. So, you know, being identified with that actually helped the PKS. Now, the PKS, I talked to them a couple of years ago. They were really, really thinking, I don't, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do because, you know, 1999, we got 1.4% of the vote. 
And then uh, we called ourselves a, a Muslim, an Islamic party. And then we got, I don't know, was it 5% of it or whatever it was, right? It wasn't huge or whatever. And then we called ourselves an open party. Anybody can come in and hopefully some you know, ethnic Chinese with lots of money come in, you know, and they got 6.9%. And they were going, I don't know what else we can do. And here they get this, you know, thing that comes down from the sky. They get 8.9. Maybe the, un unforese <laughs> the unforeseen consequences effect. Mm -hmm. um, Dirk, um, so Prabowo is, is still sort of back to his old tricks of, um, of uh, disputing the, the outcome of this election as he did in in 2014. Um, should we dismiss that as a, a, an empty gesture? Um, that's really my way of interrogating your view on whether these elections were robust enough that they are beyond questioning to the electorate themselves. Is there, is there sufficient faith and confidence, you think, in Indonesia in, in the conduct of such a large and complex election that um, uh, the loser um, can't take effect, can't take advantage of, the, of, uh, of that you know, inevitable organisational challenge in, in, in doing something on this scale. Yeah, well, it's good that you point out the scale because there were problems. Certainly there were problems. Um, some um, ballot booths were not delivered. Um, overall, I think the General Election Commission said that about 2,000 um, ballot booths were problematic for one reason or another. But that's out of 800,000 overall. So the overall percentage is relatively small. And practically all independent observers agree that the election was overall fine. Even if all these 2,000 booths will re-vote, it will not alter the outcome of the election. The quick count results that we have are, in my view, solid and credible. I do not think, um, I, I never thought from the start that when we get the quick counts that there will be any doubts about them. Um, Indonesian polling industry is well established by now. There's healthy competition between a number of institutes and they have been proven right over and over again over the last 10 years or so. What was interesting about Prabowo's refusal to accept these results was that in contrast to 2014 when, as you said, he did something similar, not exactly the same thing. In 2014, he had bought pollsters who were willing to announce their own results, which differed from the established pollsters. So Indonesian voters in 2014 looked at one television station and saw four pollsters announcing that Prabowo had won. They looked at another TV channel and they saw, oh, these pollsters announced that Jokowi had won. This time around, all that Prabowo could do was say, my own team tells me that I won. But no pollster was willing to do that again, and no TV station was willing to work or collaborate with these kinds of dodgy pollsters to do that. Um, so that's raised questions why Prabowo has actually been doing that. Um, surveys have shown that about 80 to 85 percent of Indonesians trust the General Election Commission. Uh, they know it's a massive logistical challenge and not everything will be perfect, but trust in the Commission is high. Um, so there's two main explanations now that have been floating around why Prabowo is refusing to concede defeat. One is that he's delusional, that he's just incapable of accepting that he lost yet again. You know, this was his second attempt as a presidential candidate before he had tried as a vice presidential candidate. Before that, he had tried to get a nomination for a presidential ticket and didn't get it. And he's 
So some say he is a bit like Donald Trump. He lives in his own world, believes in his own greatness, and when he's being told that he's not great enough, he's unable to accept that. I'm not quite sure that there might be a grain of truth in it, but I think um, he's more trying to, to sort of put some pressure on Jokowi, perhaps. Uh, we talked about his strategic utilization of Islamist groups. So as long as he can uphold this uncertainty, I mean, no one really believes it, and that's also changed to 2014 when there was real uncertainty. Now he tries to create this sense of uncertainty, but I think it gets a lot less traction. And it's even unclear whether the Islamists were following his appeal too much. He has called on them to protest. So far, not much has happened. Um, so he, I think he, he may be trying to put some pressure on Jokowi with the aim of ultimately, when the res once the result is official, to say, uh, you know, maybe you can give me some favors, some members of my party may get the odd position in a state-owned enterprise or even in cabinet or somewhere, um, and then I'll let go, right? Um, I think that's his strategy, but I don't think it will work. I think Jokowi is in a strong enough position to basically say, look, you lost, I just wait until the official results are there and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I'll just chip in that, um, I mean, the line that is, is the delusional argument, so perhaps, but the fact is that you have all the people around him as well who are buying into it. It's not just him. In the mo in the the On the night of the election when Prabhu came out and announced that he'd won, um, people were quick to jump on the fact that his uh, vice presidential candidate was not with him for that announcement. So there was concern that, okay, this is just Prabhu out there being crazy Prabhu. But since then, he's fallen very much into line. San Diego Uno has very much fallen into line, as have kind of the whole the whole business um, about this crusade, really, that they're on now. They're on some kind of democracy crusade um, where they're going to ensure that Indonesia's, you know, elections are free and fair and to the nth degree. But, yeah, as Dirk said, based on what, they still don't really have the evidence of, you know, vast irregularities or some kind of conspiracy. It's just not there. You know, they'll point to evidence of, uh, I saw something at a ballot station in Nias, you know, it was meant to be 72 votes. Someone had, you know, in their very dazed state after being, you know, working in one of these booths for, you know, 10 hours had, had written 723 rather than 72 or something like this. So we're not talking huge amounts of votes. And that's what Dirk's saying. Like, even though you might have irregularities in 2000 of these booths, you've got about 100 to 200 people at some voting at some of these booths. So it's not big numbers. Yeah. But yeah, where is the basis for it? We don't know. Why are they going? It's it's like they're continuing their campaign and trying to kind of you know keep that momentum going. In particular, uh, Santiago Uno. We can speculate about what what his intentions are for the next election. I, I think I think having said that, uh, no matter how Santiago Uno has fallen into line, I think. His thinking now, and it always was, I think, it is 2024. So he has to maintain a semblance of, of, of respectability, I think. So let, In case yeah. he wins. Yeah, yeah. Let, <laughs> let the other guy uh, do the crazy talk. Yeah. <laughs> he's, doing the, he's doing the business, though. He's yeah. going out to the polling booths where there's people still there, you know, invigilating or whatever. At, and he's doing that. You haven't seen Prabhu out on the hustings, but it's Sunday because he's, he's the action man. Some senses, this is an anticlimax. We've ended up with the incumbent being re-elected. So um, just to sort of ask you that question, are we going to see 
What is the impact in policy terms of this election? Are we going to see Jokowi change focus uh, in any way in terms of big domestic or foreign policies or, for that matter, the lineup of his cabinet? Do do, any any of you want to sort of venture a prediction that things are going to be different or, or is it just more of the same? Well, they want to move the capital. That's the first thing <laughs> yeah. that they announced. So is that going to happen? This is the first important thing to do. <laughs> well, they've been talking about it for so long. Well, exactly. I mean, so. Years, yeah. yeah. Well, you said it was anticlimactic. I mean, I think some people preferred anticlimax than a climax. <laughs> right. Be careful what one wishes. <laughs> uh, but in terms of policy, look, uh, you know, th- there is often the idea that, okay, He's a second-term president now. He's got nothing to lose. He can't be elected again. So he'll go off, you know, and and do all the reforms that everybody expected him to do in 2014, Uh, like like SBY was meant to do in his second term. But but the thing is, look, it's never been a contest between reformers and anti-reformers. Anti-reformers are in both camps, right? So what we have to understand is that, is that it's not Prabowo and his camp constraining or inhibiting reforms from the Jokowi camp. There are, there are lots of forces, lots of individuals, people in the inner circle of the Jokowi camp who are as anti-reformists as you can get. And w- would he actually fight a battle with them, the people who made it possible for him to get where he is and to maintain his position? Frankly, I don't think he has the appetite for that. And if you disagree, uh, Dirk or, or Gemma? No, I'm not expecting much change either. Perhaps in the sense that from what I heard in Jakarta was that Jokowi seems to have quite grown into the presidential Mm -hmm. role. Uh, If in 2012 and 14 he was still seen sort of as the humble man who came from, you know, outside Jakarta's elite, I think he's now pretty much, yeah, he he wants to leave a legacy, right? Um, What that legacy will be, I have no idea, but it may much, it's quite possible that it will result in prestige projects like moving the capital. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure if it will happen, but perhaps it's something, given that he has focused so much on infrastructure development, maybe that's something that he could see as his crowning achievement. Uh, But in terms of policy, I'm not expecting much change for pretty much the reasons that Vidi was saying. Gemma, I'm going to pick on you because you're you're at the Australia Indonesia Centre, so... What do you think the implications are? Of course, we've got an election, not just in Indonesia, but a small matter of one here uh, uh, this month. Uh, Given that there are a couple of variables that still have to happen around that, what's your best guesstimate for the potential for change in Indonesia-Australia relations? If we accept that Prabowo loses and accepts his loss and that Jokowi is still president, and if we accept that... Uh, Bill Shorten wins the election, uh, that the Labour Party wins the election. Um, I don't think we'll see any change. I mean, a Scott Morrison-led government or a Bill Shorten-led government, except what we do know is that the ALP are running on a much more forward Asia platform, a much more, you know, uh, you know kind of getting back to the old Gareth Evans days um, of being more engaged in Asia. So that's something that Penny Wong talks about a lot. So, you know, potentially you, you might want to see them try to get closer. Um, but we have the already signed or the, we've signed the agreement to sign the um, ISEPA, the, um, the 
comprehensive partnership, economic partnership. So we've kind of got over that hump that was a difficulty for a moment in the relationship. But, you know, we really, to be practical about things, there's, you know, just going to be a continuation of the, you know, the, what has been a history between the two countries, which is, you know, we have these tensions and we have these moments where it's difficult, uh, but we get past them, you know, um, because of the necessity of doing so. But yeah, I don't see much change. But where does where does Australia feature on on Jokowi's radar? Yeah, we he looks north actually. You know, he looks to China and he looks. Yeah, he's not looking. He's not here. looking in the. Rear I mean, view. we know that his government are looking here for specific things. Mm. What can we provide? And we can provide education and skills training. So that's something that we know that they're that they're keen to uh, work with us on. And Vedi would know a lot more about about that than me but um, you know that that's something so we know that we have these complementarities we know that we have this long history of you know exchange and back people movement that kind of thing and hopefully that stands us in good stead for building you know that those kinds of connections but in terms of like the broad you know Indonesia's outlook on the world it, it, it's not Australia it's not a priority yeah, I mean the two countries say. have to work on those complementarities because they are actually there, but what has actually dominated is something that actually inhibits, uh, uh, you know, uh, seeking out that complementarity. Because fundamentally, right, both Indonesia and Australia are primary commodity exporting countries, right, and they're both primarily exporting to China. We both have China as our number one trading partner. Exactly. So, 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 so that actually, I think, inhibits that, uh, that complementarities that can be found in other areas. Do, do you want to find a more optimistic note to finish on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just maybe briefly. I think we get an indication of um, how, how smoothly the relationship will continue into the near future uh, when we look at how quickly the two parliaments will ratify the agreement. Um, in both countries, new parliaments will convene. It will take some time until it's all settled. Um, I think I think Jokowi has an interest that it gets done quickly. And as you say, if Labour wins here as well. Um, but who knows? There may be hiccups in parliament. Um, the Indonesian parliament is very, very fragmented. And there may be, they may want to seek the order or concession or amendment here and there. But it's also quite possible that it will be, get done quite quickly. And I think that would be a good step towards moving forward, perhaps in a slightly more systematic way. All right. I'll settle for a systematic way as the closest we'll get to an optimistic ending. But uh, uh, I I can only thank our our distinguished panellists for their their honesty, uh, for their expertise, uh, and for for telling things as they've just seen it themselves, um, having come back from uh, one of our closest and most important neighbours. Thank you also to you two for coming today. And um, um, We hope to see you at the next Latrobe Asia event. Please help yourself to any of our uh, literature on the way out. That's why they're there. And we hope to see you again in future. Thank you very much.